today. I've also got uh, Tyanna Benson from Lean or Ty. She is my trusty sidekick in all things regulatory grief counseling and otherwise. And she and I will be walking through some pretty technical and in-depth aspects of both design controls and risk management with a lot of questions. The first part of the agenda is all about design controls and what the design control process is. And the second part is about risk management and what the risk management tools are and what that process is. So let's talk a little bit about design controls. It's something that we all hear being in the medical device industry, and it's really kind of a what are they moment. So design controls is really a set of practices and procedures that you follow to document your design and to show that you are building your design in an iterative and controlled fashion. There's not a whole bunch that's written about it. A lot of it is written in the preamble to the QSR, which not many people read. It's quite a bit longer than the actual QSR itself. And so it's kind of this area where we hear a lot of phrases, but we don't know how to do it practically. And we're going to take you through what that is and what we can do to help prevent future issues with your design and improve on technologies that are in the market. Just to go back and, and for me to get on my soapbox for a minute about the, the preamble because it's extremely relevant right now because the FDA just published what they call the quality management system regulation or the QMSR instead of the QSR, which is the quality system regulation. And that's where they are proposing harmonization with ISO 13485. And those of you who are familiar with ISO 1345, risk is integrated pretty much throughout the total product life cycle. But in the original QSR, they mentioned risk one time in context of V&V activities. And they say in the quality management system regulation, if you were to actually read the text, they said, well, like we said in the preamble, and they list about a half dozen comments that they made about risk in the preamble, which is just their explanation of what they were thinking when they wrote the regulation. It's not regulation themselves. And so they're like, so, so clearly we've, we've meant this since 1996, 1997, when the, the regulations were originally published. So that's just a little bit of context around where we're going to go with the design controls and then the risk management module. Yeah, yeah, it's a really uh, active topic right now, as Michelle mentioned, because they just published that, which is something that has been a rumor in industry for many, many years and actually kind of came out. And there's a lot of uh, nebulousness about how that's going to be implemented because we'll talk about, you know, certain people have design controls and certain people are exempt and all of that. So design controls. We always see what's kind of a traditional waterfall process, but what we don't see is what design controls are not. And they're not your 510K. They don't mean that you have market clearance. They're not your patent. It's a process. It has a bunch of documentation that comes that's part of the outputs. And it starts with user needs, which feed into design inputs. And those inputs then feed design outputs. And then you verify that your outputs are meeting your inputs. And then you kind of get a medical device. And then you validate that that medical device meets your user needs and you actually built the right device. And then from there, 
go through this whole process and you get to design transfer and you're like, oh, I got to send that to manufacturing and somehow mass market and produce it. And that's kind of the traditional process, but there's a whole bunch of steps there. So it's not a 510K, it's not your patent. It's a huge series of process and the culmination of a lot of effort. So why do we do design controls? Well, Michelle mentioned risk and how in the preamble, there's a whole bunch of risk discussion, whereas in the QSR, which is the actual regulation, they mention it once, was software validations. And if you dig even deeper than that, there's hundreds of guidance documents on talking about how to incorporate risk and how to deal with risk. And the reason design controls and risk management is tied is because of all of the recalls that happen because designs are not inherently safe. And so almost all of half of all recalls is because people aren't adequately designing things. They're not designing things safely. They're not designing things that are meeting the intended use or the indications for use. They get out on the market and then they cause patient injuries or harm. And that's what happens. And that's why design controls exist now. And so when they talk about that total product life cycle, things are supposed to obviously be inherently safe by design, but they're also supposed to, when you cause such an event, like one of these recalls or product failures on the market, theoretically, they're supposed to drive an improvement in your design and that design control cycle becomes iterative. Also, you can use adverse events from your competitors' products that should also be part of your post-market surveillance and then also feed your own design controls process. So when you start these, so there's lots of different times that you start them. Like Michelle mentioned, it can be a mechanism of change or revision. So you might have released a product, notice that you were getting a lot of recalls, a lot of complaints, and you would be following your risk management process ultimately in a loop back to your design control process to make changes to your design. But really, if you're starting, if you're a biotech and you're starting fresh and you're a brand new medical device company, you should be starting your design controls right after feasibility or proof of concept. What you wanna avoid is the trap of having a final finished product and then doing your design controls because it's very retroactive work and it stinks. I have been here, we have done this. It's terrible to try and recreate a design history file after you've already finished everything out. Have to do it before you're on market. And a lot of people think that they wanna have all the kinks nailed out because you don't wanna spend all this time documenting, but really you need to do that because you need to show evidence of your iterative design. So phases of your design. You always start with a design plan, and this is kind of an underutilized tool by a lot of individuals because it's kind of a checkbox activity. Really what the design plan does and what it should do is be updated as you're going through and you're fledging out what you're gonna make and keeping everyone on the same page. You have to identify all the individuals that are responsible for different activities. Who's part of the cross-functional team? What activities are you gonna conduct? What's your estimated timeline? All of that needs to be part of it. And there's a lot of mistakes when someone is doing their design planning. They either don't do it at all, or they make it once and they don't update it as your design evolves. So if you start making one thing, 
find out that you're missing things, completely scrap the design, your plan never gets updated or it's misused as a business tool. They tie it to fundraisers, marketing. They tie it to specific company milestones. They use it for budgeting. That's not really the purpose of a design plan. It should be more objective than that. And in terms of design plans, you can see this is the different phases. So you have inputs like we talked about, outputs, verification, validation, transfer. But design planning is all the way to the end. And it's not this sharp drop off of activities. They have overlap. And you can see that you kind of reach the peak of everything when you're in verification and validation. But you're already needing to start design transfer. And it's important to keep an idea that these different phases do need to talk to each other and they need to mingle, even as you're putting in your design reviews. And what does that mean? So... You're ready to start your design and you're starting from scratch and you have no history. The first thing you need to do is your intended use statement and your indication for use. This is critical to proper design controls. And if you've been to the other two trainings, you'll know why. So your intended use, your indications for use statements drive your product code. They drive what kind of requirements your device needs. Is it a 510K? or a PMA, it, divide, it drives standards that you need to follow. It can even drive things like, can it be used at home or does it need to be used in a clinical setting? Things like that. So when you first have your design plan, you need to have identified what are you building? What's the intended use and who's gonna be using it? From there, you can identify your next step of user needs. So you know what you want it to do, you know what it needs to do now. Does it need to be sterile? Does it need to be biodegradable? Does it need to be light? Does it need to be portable or in a clinical setting? You put in layman's terms around what you need for the, the design and your device to accomplish. From your user needs, you then generate design inputs. And inputs are much more of a performance characteristics or physical. You can say the user need the device must be handheld and portable and your or your inputs can be the device needs to weigh less than three pounds. That's how they feed into each other. And so how do you get from a more general term like user needs to a nice measurable design inputs? Well, you need to be clear and objective. You need to avoid incomplete ambiguous or conflicting design inputs. And the one that really gets people here is ambiguous. You can't just say the device must be light. It should be the device should be lighter than seven pounds or some. Or tied to some sort of ergonomic metric about what the general population can carry. They need to be measurable because you need to have an output that ties to your design inputs. And you need to standardize how you write them. They should have a number, a statement, supporting references if applicable. If, like Michelle said, it's tied to a certain standard or number. And then criteria around that. So where do design inputs come from? There's a huge list of them. Safety, performance, just actual physical size. But the one people miss a lot are standards. And so if you have your intended use, and your product code kind of identified, 
you can go in and look for any recognized consensus standards that are out there that are important for you to know that you need to include that test data. One, it will have to be in your 510k submission if you need to do one. And two, FDA is going to be expecting that you had tested to them. So I've said a lot of words now. What does that like visually mean? Because I can talk all day and I'm sure many of you are starting to have your eyes glaze a little bit because this is really heavy. But what does that mean practically? So this is an example of a trace matrix. A trace matrix is a fundamental document to design controls. It kind of maps the entire project and summarizes things super cleanly and nicely. So we have an example from a mask here, a surgical mask. And you have a user need here. So the device must protect from microorganisms, body fluids, and particulate materials. You can see the user need has an identified statement, but here is the design input. So like Michelle mentioned, the design input could be from a common percentile of the US population. You know you wanna cover 98% of people or something like that. It can have a maximum or a minimum width to meet those criteria. You can even get it from competitors. If you say you want to fit a competitor or a known industry standard, that's all good reasons for design input criteria. It's important to know that a user need can have more than one design input and many user needs will have more than one design input. So not only do you need to consider that you have to cover your mouth and nose with a surgical mask, you also have to address those standards. And one of those standards were bacteria filtration efficiency. And so we have a second design input that's been added here. So you've gone through user needs and design inputs, and now you're ready to start actually designing and doing design outputs. So design outputs are the end of the total design efforts. When you've finished all your design outputs, you're commonly at what's called design freeze. And the reason people call this design freeze is that it becomes very expensive to go back and change your design after you have started to make it off of the lot. Because after you've done all your design outputs, you need to go test it. And so if you make any changes to your design during testing, it takes a lot of hoops to justify those changes in front of the FDA. So what are design output examples? This can be... We're offering it in these specific sizes. We use this specific polymer. You can list colorants, you can list weights, packaging configurations, and it's all documented on your production equivalent information. So your bill of materials, your drawings, your specification sheets, and your instructions for use and labeling. So we're back to our visual example here of a trace matrix, and you can see it's flushing out even further. So we have our user need, and we've already identified these two design inputs. The next part is to put out your design output. So we know that our, our requirement here for bacterial filtration efficiency, BFE, is 95%. And then you can see that we have a medium, a large, and an extra large size that's offered for the three of us. Now this shows a completed design trace matrix where we also have our verification, 
reports and plans along with their outcomes. This is a really nice visual summary of the entire design effort and will be really your best friend when an auditor comes in because you can just show them this and they can understand at a glance the whole process. So each of these design outputs are linked back to a design input and the design input is linked to a user need and the intended use of the device. At this point, you probably had either one or two design reviews. So design reviews are kind of your stop check. This is when you stop and say to yourself, have I missed anything? Am I going too quick? Am I too overlapping? You have to sit down in a very formal, sometimes odd <laughs> meeting and you invite everyone around and you go, did we miss anything? Yeah, challenge <laughs> everything. And you have to have somebody in the room that really didn't have anything to do with the actual design or the phase that you're in. They have, you have to have an independent reviewer. So who needs to participate in your design reviews? Honestly, I think the best is if you can get everyone that's really responsible across your team. I find that people often don't include manufacturing until too late in the process. And they include them only in transfer. And then it turns into a mess when they go over to transfer. Or they don't include marketing who catches if there aren't all the user needs or inputs. That or make up new ones halfway through your design. <laughs> or marketing sometimes makes up things halfway through the design and you have to go back and add some things. Making sure regulatory is there to identify those standards that you can just really simply miss. Everyone already thinks of quality and engineering as being important, but it really is a cross-functional effort. And sometimes you don't have the resources, but if you do, you really should have them in there to do that stop check. And what you really do is you sit together and you write that you're approving to go to the next phase and that you have completed all the activities to round out that phase that you're in and identified any action items that you need to do later. So Ty DePaul has a question. He says, are design outputs defined before design inputs? No. And no. Oh. So exactly. <laughs> go, go ahead. That was an emphatic no. <laughs> this is a hard thing because it's a little bit of a chicken for an egg situation. I'm an engineer by trade. So my background is in engineering. And when I'm in this process, I jump right to a design output. I know right away I want my device to weigh four ounces. That's it. But that's not really the intention here. A, an output should not be before an input unless you are working on maybe a second generation of a device and you already have a historic design history file and you're building on a product line. And an input should not be before a, a user need. No. And most companies skip over the user need, that whole user definition altogether and move straight to sometimes design outputs, not even design inputs. But it is a very linear and it should be a one-to-one -one or many-to-one or many-to-many, -many, but it, it should be always a right-to-left like your reading flow. It should always be this way. User needs, inputs, and then outputs. And you know, that's a good question because I remember very early on in my career, I was in a design input training and 
they talked about how their user needs were not well-defined and how it ruined an entire product line because they were making portable AEDs for firemen. And they said, well, our user need is it has to be portable and light. And by the time they got all the way through the design process, their portable light AED was 13 pounds. Now, firemen's already carrying 50 pounds of equipment into a building. They can't add 13 pounds on. And so they got all the way to production and realized nobody was buying it because it was six pounds heavier than the one already commercially available. And so it really should all come from user needs. And then if you if you skip around, you have a chance of running the gamut and building something that nobody wants. Which is going to take us perfectly into verification and validation. So verification and validation, V and V, they are almost never separate, even though the waterfall shows them as separate. Verification is the confirmation by objective evidence that your output meets your design inputs. So it's a lot of your bench testing. You pull something off of the line, put it in a go, no go gauge. You test it for functionality. And then you have design validation, which is objective evidence that your specifications conform with the user needs and intended use of your device. So this is done really in a clinical setting or a simulated use setting to ensure that your intended use is being met by the end user. So verification is, did I make the product correctly? And validation is, did I make the correct product? In the case of the people making the AEDs for firemen, they did not make the correct product. So their validation had failed. Yeah. So they, they made the product correctly because they made it to their design specifications, but they didn't make the correct product for the market because they didn't correctly articulate their user need. That's exactly right. So we've talked about inputs, outputs, user needs, verification, validation, and we get to the last guy, which is transfer. And I think transfer is the hardest phase of them all because so much has to happen here with a lot of people that didn't necessarily be heavily involved in the design process. If you work at a big company and you have a research department and a manufacturing department, design transfer, when done well, is a beautiful thing, but there's a lot of pitfalls. So what the, okay. when Ty um, mentioned earlier, who do you need at your design reviews and when? And she mentioned a common mistake is not involving people from manufacturing until you get to design transfer. Well, the reason why you want them involved before you get to that phase is because what if you haven't designed it for manufacturability? And the prototypes that you've built are, are really only appropriate for a bench top with like a single engineer or two working on it, not a full manufacturing production line. And then you have a uh, design for manufacturability because you didn't ask anybody in manufacturing while you were creating those design inputs and outputs. Yep. And before you can transfer your design, you have to make sure that all of your in-process acceptance criteria have been defined that your storage conditions are defined. You have to make sure everything is tagged and you know what that process is. And this, I think, is where the biggest communication breakdowns can happen. 
because so many people have to be involved and so many people are brought in too late. When you're doing that verification and validation, you remember I had my graph with my little peaks. You can see manufacturing transfer is is happening a little bit in, in verification and validation because you need to be building some units to do your product under test. And so when you're ready for design transfer, you need to really stop and think and make sure everything has been updated. Like things like, is your website up to date with your instructions for use in your new product? All of that goes into it. It's a huge effort. And once you've transferred to production and you have a commercial product, your design control process temporarily ends, even though it doesn't. But what happens is, is you have new mechanisms introduced, which is you either need to document your changes in a letter to file or a new submission to the FDA. You need to take more assessments on product in the field, and you have to go through the change control process. So you're going through design transfer and you transfer to production. And at the end of all of your design controls activities, you'll have a completed design history file. There's basically three types of product related documentation. There's the design history file, which has the whole design of everything and the whole process. You have the device master record, which is kind of your recipe cookbook. It's exactly how you build it, what work instructions you use, what the storage conditions are, all of the specifications. Then you have the device history record, which is how it was actually built. This is what people fill out when they're on a manufacturing line and they say, I use this lot of packaging and this number of units failed in this lot. People have a hard time kind of putting the different documentation in the right bucket. Where do you store kinds of information? So you have labeling with barcode and UDI. All that label copy goes in your device history record. You have drawings and specifications. Those go in your master record because that's how you build it. So the differentiation here is that one is lot specific to a unique manufacturing batch. The next is not lot specific, but it's, it's your recipe. It's how you build this every single time, but it's not necessarily over specific to any one particular lot. And then that last one is the design history files. How did you get there in the first place? So this is going to be your whole waterfall process. And what do you do with post-it notes? Go in the trash. You don't keep those. All right, let's talk about change control because we've done all of the hefty stuff. So what happens when you actually have a product? You've produced it, you've given yourself a shot of tequila and a gold star because you've gotten this far along. But then your product's in the market. Marketing is like, this has failed every single time I've done a demo with it. Is it a complaint? You go, yes, it's a complaint. And then you have to file all these complaints and you realize you have a design flaw and you need to make a change. Design changes or change control is a documented procedure on how you make changes to your device. And that sounds really simple for a really complicated set of questions. Because when you change a design feature, you have to determine the impact of the product as a whole. Have you changed regulatory requirements? Have you invalidated certain design features? Do you need to do retesting? Do you need to do another design review because you've had to make so many changes and updated so many things? 
FDA has a guidance um, for documents that are impacted, which is a good tool for you guys. But there are things to consider in your changes, like make sure your change isn't done with just engineering and quality when what you're changing is an IFU. Maybe marketing needs to look at it. And then marketing needs to actually send out a notice to product in the field. Make sure your design history file gets updated with new versions of different documents. Make sure that before you implement them, this is really critical, before they are implemented, you have to have re-verified or re-validated different features if they are impacted. You need to make sure that letter to file is done. Or if you have a 510K that needs to be uh, a special because you've had changes, you have to have that clearance before you can make that change and sell it. That's a requirement. And the FDA did several years ago issue a new guidance document for special 510Ks. And they both opened up the types of things you could use a special 510K for, but then also narrowed the number of things because people would try to make, say, 20 changes to their device and then do try to do a, a special 510K. And the FDA is like, you can't throw in the kitchens, everything in the kitchen sink and try to tell me every one of these meets the criteria of a special 510K. No, the guidance is very strict now. They're like, you get three. <laughs> if it's more than three, it's a whole new 510K. So if you do basics with your design change, what you really want to do is make sure that you're increasing the safety and efficacy of your device. You want a, a device that better meets patient and your market needs. You get products to market faster because you're doing it right the first time. You're not having an issue where FDA comes in, you have to do a recall and all of this hullabaloo and you stay on market longer. And that's because you've made a good product that's inherent by design. So deep breath, we've talked a lot here. I have talked fairly robustly, fairly quickly. Do we have any, I think it's a good time to just say, do we have any design control specific questions? We've got a question from our um, friend Santosh Baggett. I know you're not covering ISO 1345 here, but how does the medical device file relate to the DHF, DMR, and DHR? It's most close in nature, the medical device file to the device history file. However, I think one of the big differences is that the medical device file is also supposed to reference the actual regulatory uh, submissions and documents that came out of the device history file, where usually in the U.S. That, that's typically not a, a part of that, that whole umbrella. The submission is kind of more of a standalone. Yeah. Do you have anything to add to that, Ty? No, I think that's pretty complete. I mean, ISO 13485 in general ties regulation a little bit closer to home then like 21 CFR 820, it still very much feels like a quality activity where ISO and the medical device file, it's a lot closer of a tie because you have your technical documentation and then all of your CERs and even your post-market surveillance that kind of goes in a nice big package together where it's a little more siloed in 21 CFR 820. Dan asks a question. He says, for project managers, what is your recommendations to plan these efficiently because of its agile nature? One thing that I, I mean, everyone has different styles, but what I think is really important 
is a really good checklist and flowchart of your own design system. Many years ago, Michelle made the mother of all flowcharts for me, which is on the website. And that's a different story for a different time. But for a project manager, it's really important for you to understand all the different forms that need to be completed at what extent they need to be completed to for the phase of design you're in and making sure that you understand because you're not going to be the subject matter expert, making sure you understand what the final package should be. And you're keeping track that everything gets revised and touched on that needs to be revised and touched on at the different phases. So you know you need to have the plan and the plan should be looked at before every design review and updated. You know you have a risk management file, which we'll talk about next. Make sure that that's getting updated to the appropriate completion level for each design phase it's in. There's a list of documents you'll always have to have and just having a really good checklist will be your best friend. And again, you know, we've said it probably a half dozen times, and we're going to say it a half dozen more, having the right people probably a phase or two earlier than you think you need them. Definitely well. bring manufacturing in, definitely have marketing in, because it's one of the biggest complaints when you do a culture training or you go to a company and people feel like they're siloed, like they had no input and they get handed things off and it's just a disaster. But if you have the right people in the room and knowing that some of these documents, they should have a huge cross-functional team and they're just kind of slow going like the FMEA, which we'll talk about the failure mode effect analysis. You need more people than just one engineer to complete it. And that's what I see happen and things are missed. Okay. Let's go into risk management. So, you know, I've, I've brought this up before and I'm on my soapbox about this a lot lately. And that is the preamble. The FDA is notorious for reinterpreting things that they said a decade or more ago and saying, oh, well, if you reinterpret this one word in context of these 600 other pages of material that we've published, then you can see this is clear what we meant all along, even though that we didn't flat out say it in the regulation. So one of the, the comments that for just risk analysis that the FDA references frequently is preamble comment number 83, where they say that you, you should identify possible hazards, including user error. You should calculate the risk under normal and fault conditions. You should determine the risk acceptability, reduce unacceptable risk to acceptable levels, and ensure changes made do not introduce new, new hazards. Well, that's quite a mouthful that extends beyond the act of what ended up in the regulation with a single use in terms of uh, verification activities. And, you know, I think one thing that they were forward looking on is that, that they were clear that in design validation, that the design validation also includes software validation. And then again, this is where they use that term risk analysis is for design validation, but they use the term where appropriate, but it's really required, it's always appropriate. It's inappropriate to say it's inappropriate. And so, so this is just a little bit of, of the regulatory context. And again, you know, in general, I feel like ISO 13485 
has always been more clear about risk analysis, but then at the same time, they've it wasn't until about 2016 that their definitions of design controls in those phases contained as much bulk and weight as as the process that was described in in the QSR. So the two have really kind of grown together over the last few decades. So some benefits of the formal risk management process, it focuses and prioritizes product development activities. It provides a culture of improvement. It should really be a continual improvement tool. It creates uniformity and predictability and risk-related decision-making. You know, this is associated with your risk criteria. And in that, that risk, um, that criteria, you know, that definition, it's intended to take something that's a little bit of a, uh, maybe an objective discussion and put some numerical context around it to where it becomes, no, I'm sorry, other way around, of subjective discussion, and it becomes a little bit more objective through the, the criteria structure. The ultimate goal of this is, of course, to increase patient safety, but, you, you know, any user safety uh, as well. And then to reduce the likelihood that you're going to have adverse events and product failures. And then if you, if you do, then again, with that product life cycle, these things are feeding back in and this process starts over in terms of your design improvements. So a show of hands, uh, and you can type the answers in, in the chat if you like. When's the appropriate time to start your at-risk management activities? You know, A, once you have a functional prototype, B, after your 510K clearance, C, during design validation and design transfer, or D, as soon as possible? Oh, I'm seeing some Ds here. Yep. Oh, look, our buddy Edwin's on here during research. Hi. He is, uh, I think you're, you're all right, because for most companies uh, that, that, you know, as soon as possible, because most of them probably haven't started <laughs> at, at the right time anyways. Edwin, who actually sits on the committee for 14971, is, is right. You know, there is an element that should be happening in your very early research and design and somewhere in that, that feasibility. For sure, your usability analysis, your user needs should be articulated during that research phase. And that's what's going to fund your, fulfill your design inputs. So if you look at your, your opportunity to influence your product design, your, it's greatest in the definition and early design stage. And then that rapidly narrows down as you move out of that early design and into prototyping. Even if you ask the right questions at the wrong time, your ability to, to influence that design can have some very costly implications in that if you didn't get the right user needs or regulatory requirements articulated, you can have to redo some, some very expensive, costly, timely um, testing. And, and then one fun thing to know is that if you test on prototypes too early and you end up redesigning them, the FDA will specifically ask you how, to, how does the unit under test compared to the unit under your, your submission. So even if 
so you you want to be as articulate as you can during that research and design and early feasibility with your implementation of uh, risk and risk and usability together. Um, and Edwin made another comment. He says that risk management is also required for clinical trials in ISO 14155. In addition to that, in a past life, I had to work on IDE project and risk management was a big part of that. You know, you have to put in your significant risk versus non-significant risk designation kind of um, for clinical documents, but you had to back a lot of that up with research that was already available of similar devices. And so you start your risk management really by seeing what's out there and what's going to be compa comparable because it will be a part of any of the clinical trials you have to complete. You have to submit a lot of that documentation. And for any of you that are going to go through the MDR, medical device regulation in Europe, you know, 14155 and 13185 are going to be the BOPSI twins for, for you and getting your product cleared. So your risk management file begins with the articulation of your user needs. And again, that should happen very usually early on. And that is an output of your, the usability engineering process. Your user needs should fuel your design inputs, your design outputs, your VMV activities, and your transfer to, to production. And this risk management file is living and there are different aspects of risk analysis that need to occur at each one of these processes and throughout the process. And it should start all over once you go into the post-market surveillance um, cycle. Yeah, so it's just important to note that for each of these different, the animation went real quick, but for each of these different sections, you know, you've had six revisions to the same document by the time you get there. And that's what's really important for project managers to capture is making sure that these master documents are getting updated and that they're getting looked at and not skipped. So ISO 14971, this is voluntary but it's a FDA recognized consensus standard to manage the risk management process. We all know that anything that the FDA says is voluntary, if you're not going to do it, you have to come up with something that is better and far exceeds what they have recognized as kind of a minimally viable um, process. And again, they uh, even mentioned this in the preamble. So it, it is very much the foundation of how they're thinking about risk management, even though it was not very clearly articulated in the actual quality system regulation, it will be when they finalize the, the QMSR, the quality management system. Yeah, I think that's one big difference between Europe. I think Europe is a little bit clearer about being like, these are requirements. FDA likes to flirt with the, this is a guidance document. This is a voluntary standard. And like, they don't really mean it. Like just for anyone who is starting in the medical device space, those are actual requirements. If you are not going to follow them, it, it has to have been something that probably you and FDA have agreed on in a pre-submission and documented like crazy. It's probably not worth the effort and you should just stick to what's standard and available nice is all the guidance documents are public and free here. You don't have to pay for a standard. So, yeah. Which was something that was interesting about 1345 is that because if they were going to align 
the quality system regulation with it, it, it's, it was hard for them to tell people that they will, you have to buy this standard that's going to ultimately be regulation. So 1345, they did make, they did make available publicly for free when they came out with a QMSR amendment. Is this a risky activity or not? Well, to have risk, we're going to have to talk about the scope of definition, how you calculate it. We're going to talk about the types of hazards, hazardous situations, and the probability of occurrence of a harm. And all of these things have to, have to happen and have to happen in an interlinked order for there ultimately to create a risk. So anyhow, a risk can be the combination of the probability of occurrence of harm and the severity of that harm. So you have to have the, the culmination of the severity of that harm with the prob probability of occurrence of that harm that can create the context for a risk. So a harm is specifically defined as an injury or damage to the health of people or damage to property or environment. If something can create a harm per that definition, it by, it by nature can't also be a risk. But then how do you drive that uh, severity and probability if we, we have decided that we have a harm that could happen? Well, Houston, we have a situation. So what's the probability of occurrence of harm? What is the severity of that harm? Well, this looks like a reasonably innocuous situation aside from it looks like he could fall off that thing and, and drowned or be washed up on the beach. But what if this is, is your hazard? Well, this alone doesn't pose a harm or a risk unless you are in a hazard uh, a situation, a hazardous situation to get exposed to that, to uh, harm. So in this scenario right now, we can see that the probability of occurrence of a harm is greater than zero. We have got a situation, we've got a hazard, and the two have come together in such a way that we now have a hazardous situation. So if the, the picture on the left, you know, we, we it's, it, it's possibly a hazardous situation. If this shark is jaws and it jumps out of this, the water, maybe this guy is, say, is unsafe, but largely there's probably not any risk, even though we still have a hazard, we don't really have a situation to be exposed to that hazard versus the one on the right is a hazardous situation where we're likely to experience harm and that the probability of occurrence of that harm and the severity is significant. And so therefore we have a risk in the situation on the right. But what if we wanna talk about risk mitigations? Well, a lot of people don't know this about Julia Child, but she actually worked for what was a predecessor to the CIA before she became a, a legendary French chef. Um, so she worked for the Office of Strategic Services and she was commissioned because in World War II, the ships were getting blown up and tropical waters and people were, uh, the ships were sinking. 
and soldiers were floating in the water and they weren't dying from drowning or the, the boats or you know sinking with the boat, they were getting eaten by sharks. And so one of her first uh, assignments was to come up with what, what she ended up calling shark cakes. And the answer to the threat of man-eating sharks was announced here today and she essentially developed shark cakes. And it was this, this block that they had in their life vest and they could break the block if they saw a shark coming and it released this smell of dead shark. And they didn't want to be around the waters that smelled like dead animals like, like themselves. So in this situation, this was uh, where the US government created a mitigation to where, yeah, we're in a hazardous situation. Maybe we haven't reduced the risk to zero, but we've mitigated as far as we can reasonably do in, in, given the circumstances. So if, if you take a closer look at the hazards, you know, there are many different types of hazards that, that can occur. And so it's very hopeful to have a checklist and go through these in a very uh, thoughtful way. To, to think about if they could apply to your product or not. And if not, you know, really think through why not um, and how or if they could, particularly in some of the biological. So sequence of events that, that lead to a risk. For a hazardous situation, you have to have a sequence of events that, that, yield, that is a combination of a hazard that happens that leads to a harm. These, uh, each one of these sequence of events and the combination of the hazard and the harm has individual probabilities. Now, 14971 was updated recently. You have a lot more potential probabilities to consider than just this, but you kind of get the idea of the sequence of events and that lead to the hazardous situation is going to expose us to a hazard and then you have other probabilities associated with the harm of a result that comes from that uh, exposure to the hazard and so it's the combination of all of those probabilities that lead to you identifying if you have a risk present or not. Generally in your, your overall risk management plan is going to constitute of some elements of your risk analysis and risk evaluation those elements are going to make up your risk assessment, whereas the whole overall life cycle is going to um, uh, involve risk control, the evaluation of your overall residual risk, your risk management review, and your post-production activities. I think um, one thing that's really important to point out in this flowchart is that there's also a section called reasonably foreseeable misuse. And I feel like in my career, this has been a struggle to get people to adequately document or address because it's a little bit of, it can be a little bit of a rabbit hole area for some people who just keep thinking about, well, I could see them, I can see that. But it is a really important part of risk management in 14971. They've actually in the recent revision to 20, in 2019, they've actually added more language about foreseeable misuse. 
but I can always tell that there's like an interesting foreseeable that someone did something interesting in a complaint when I read an instructions for use document. I was reading an instructions for use document for some sort of in vitro diagnostic test. I think it was like a pregnancy test or something. And in their IFU, it said, do not use while driving. I guarantee you that means someone tried to take a pregnancy test while they were driving and they had no idea that that could have happened, but someone did it. It probably caused a car crash. I'm assuming because how else would they report this risk? And it just, it's, it fat, it's a, a, an amazing idea to sit down and think about how people will misuse things. And I know in hospital events, a big one is that they'll, people will turn off alarms because they're tired of hearing them beep. And they know that they're at like 20% and it's not really critical yet, but that's a really uh, important area that gets glossed over because either you don't have people who understand user needs well, and they don't understand the people who will be using your device in the way that they operate. And so they, they can't really accommodate for it, but it's a really important part because if you miss something, you can have a reportable event because of something that you just didn't anticipate a clinical provider would do. And so um, Ty, since you just brought up IVDs, it's a good time to answer Dorothea's question where she says, can a false positive be considered as a harm in relationship to a misdiagnosis? With IVDs, if you do have a false positive um, and you are making clinical decisions on that, that is a harm. You have to take into account what the worst case scenarios are. are. Like is a false negative worse or is a false positive worse? And then you need to make sure that we'll get to this, but you need to make sure it's inherently safe by design. And there are multiple fail safes. There's follow-up testing that's required. Yeah. And what is the course of, if you have a false positive, what's the course of treatment that might be prescribed as a result of that false positive? And what are the risks that could arrive for somebody getting treatment um, for a condition that they, they don't have? That is a very big consideration when you do IVDs or if you do diagnostic software, what is the outcome of treatment and does it cause, you know, greater harm to them if they had not been treated at all? So for risk identification, you have to document both the intended use and the foreseeable misuse of the device. What might go wrong? Now, you, you don't need to go out in la-la land with, with reasonably for, foreseeable and just, you know, make up every hypothesis of things that you could see go wrong in, in the environment. And then you also have to think about your post-market surveillance in this. Once it happens in a complaint, guess what? It's reasonably foreseeable because it happened. Therefore, you can, you can anticipate that it's something that could, could happen again. And then you have to identify known and foreseeable hazards associated with that device on top of the use of that device. You know, is it intended to contact the patient and other persons? What is the use environment? There are, are times that I have seen marketing people change their intended use, their, their market to say, well, I know I wanted this to be for the hospital environment, but now we really think we need to be able to sell it in home care too. 
Well, for certain types of electrical equipment, there uh, the electrical safety standards have got a ton of risks that you have to think about. And those risks that you have to think about and quantify are different for the use environment. And then they're also different, uh, there's different design requirements for different use re uh, environments. You know, you don't have to just, this doesn't have to be just a bubble that you sit with your engineering team and, and come up with. These are also things that can be fed by regulatory standards, flat out telling you what risk you have to think about. And I know for 60601, even if a risk isn't relevant to your product, you have to discuss it in your risk management plan about why it's not relevant. And if they can't find it, they'll they'll give you a, a finding in the electrical safety test because a good bit of it now is is documentation based. And Michelle mentioned something there that was really subtle, but is really important. She says that that risk influenced the design. And so we're talking about safe by inherent design, but also risk can lead to your design inputs. If you have a standard of care, you know, a lot of my family works in hospitals, so I'm painstakingly familiar with the hospital environment. Color codes are a really big deal in hospitals, and they use color codes for different things, like for slippers or for masks or things like that. And if your design might be color coordinated different than an industry standard, you can introduce a risk like that. That's how entwined these need to be. They need to be right next to each other so that you're not either introducing a risk or you're not mitigating a known risk with your design. Dorothy, uh, Edwin put in the comment in the, the chat, uh, pointed out that Annex H and ISO, the TR document, so that's a, a technical report um, that goes uh, as a companion guide to 14971, is an excellent reference for IBD risk management. We've been talking about kind of reasonably foreseeable. You need to look in FDA's uh, historical databases. You need to look in the MAUD database, adverse events, uh, recalls. Why, why have the products been recalled? If you're going to make, you know, masks there, you can look through what are the, the reasons that masks have been recalled or any other product and um, make sure that you have addressed those. I would also make this part of your post-market surveillance where you go through these databases and you look at what's going on with your competitors if you haven't had any adverse events and is what happening with your competitors, anything that you could reasonably foresee as being relevant to your product in a way that you could mitigate risk. Uh, another area that you can look is in the clinical databases as well. There are risks associated with certain types of procedures and similar devices, that's an area to see if any adverse events have been coming out of that. For risk analysis, you need to estimate the risk for each hazardous situation. So if you have to have a hazard, you have to have a sequence of events and those together make the hazardous situation. And that's where you're gonna estimate your, your risk level. So this is just, a, you know, every company should really define their risk, uh, severity, probability of frequency, and um, the map for their, their risk analysis process. You know, this is kind of the off the shelf one that's, that's, that's been used 
you know, in many different types of in industries, but this should really be customized to be appropriate for your, your company and your products. So if, if, you know, we go through one of these hazardous situations and we look, okay, what, what our risk severity, you know, it could be minor. It's going to be a slight customer inconvenience with little to no effect on product performance. And it's a non-vital fault. So we're going to give that a, a severity rating of two. Its probability of occurrence is, let's say it's three, it's one in 10,000. And we can see from a three and a two that we've, we've got kind of a medium level risk here. And that is going to be ultimately be a risk level of six. And then, then we would want to go into risk control, which is your next step after that initial risk assessment, risk analysis, and rating. So then you look at risk control and what can we do to control or mitigate the probability that, that of, of those, that hazardous situation causing a harm. You know, the order of operations here is it's supposed to be inherently safe by design and manufacturer. So what can you do? in the actual design of the product or the manufacturing process to mitigate that risk? Where can you have protective measures like fail safes, alarms, um, other control mechanisms? And then the, the last one, and, and you can, you can um, reevaluate your risk score after you conduct an activity of one or two, and you can lower your score with taking such measures. But for item number three, for just publishing information for safety or training to users, um, that's putting the onus of the user for the avoiding the risk and the hazardous situation. And you don't get, you, you can't in your risk documentation lower uh, risk rating because you put something in IFU alone. Yeah, your IFU and your labeling is really your last option. It's really kind of the, the final tack on to do everything you can to control the risk. So your production and post-production activities, this is a, a feedback loop directly into your, re, your risk management system. You've, you've also heard me talk about the total product life cycle and, and all of this feeds into your, your risk management process. Uh, obviously external sources like your complaints and customer feedback but also internal sources like your corrective and preventive action system, internal audit, management review. These should all feed, feed into your risk management process. You should really be looking at your risk management files once a year in context of, of these external and internal sources of data and making sure that the risk analysis process is still appropriate for your, your product and your company and that you have no new risk identified in these feedback loops. So in fun fact, if you've got a CE mark under, uh, under the MDR, talking about your complaint or your post-market data alone is not going to be sufficient. They expect you to proactively uh, seek out feedback from your, your customers in that post-market environment to the point that, that they say, well, you know, for products that don't have complaints, is it because you really don't have complaints or because you're not, you know, forming a relationship with your customer and asking them? So um, I've heard people recommend surveys and various other different methods to collect information from the end users.
your production and your post-production activities. You know, the information collection should be, you know, your, the monitoring of your production processes, your complaints, your service reports, mm-hmm. maintenance records. Like, especially, I think this is kind of an under, underutilized, under-evaluated, the service and maintenance records. You know, all that, again, should feed your risk management, your clinical activities, market patient service, surveys. You know, again, in, in Europe, you're going to be expected to do your scientific literature search, um, you know, at minimum once a year. You know, social media can be a, a big input these days. Uh, and then in security data sources. So that's where you get the information. You review that information and say, you know, does this indicate that the benefits of our device are truly achieved? Are there misuse that we did not originally foresee? Is this one, uh, this is one of my favorites, another soapbox of mine, is the state of the art still the same? So um, typically this means, are there any new consensus standards, harmonized standards uh, that might be relevant to the, the, the performance of my device that I didn't originally test to? It's required in Europe to stay um, what they consider state of the art. So if a standard came out or got updated after your product went to market, you're expected that you're, you, you keep that testing up to date. Now, fun fact, ISO 14971 defined in 2019, defined for the first time, uh, state of the art. And guess what it is not? It's not what you would think of as state of the art in terms of the most technologically advanced, but it's more what has been recognized as a state of the art or standard of care in terms of established performance criteria. So not necessarily the most cutting edge and technologically advanced. And then, then you're expected to take action on that and um, update your documents. You know, this could be product testing in terms of doing uh, evaluations. It could be actually making changes to your product. You might need to do field safety notice or a recall, depending on what you find in this post-market um, surveillance activities. Edwin uh, left a, another uh, comment in the, the chat. ISO 14971-2019 also requires proactive review of data and is developed from GHTF SG3 slash N18 CAPA guidance, which has lots of information on proactive and reactive data review. And for those of you who don't know, GHTF is the Global Harmonization Task Force that developed a long time ago a lot of really helpful, really in-depth guidance documents on many aspects of the quality management system. And as we progress, uh, especially progress towards the the MDR in Europe, you're going to see these expectations that regulators have been talking about for, for many years. And so when they up the, the regulations, they're really just including things that they have been asked the the industry to do all along in a guidance document. Yeah. And, and, you know, in Europe, they're a little more proactive at looking at your design, your technical documentation, year in, year out, and FDA is not quite that robust. You have unannounced audits that come every five to seven years, typically. And 
you can really get into trouble here with that state of the art because guidance documents will come out and FDA will have certain expectations and your 510k that might be 10 or 14 years old is out of date and you haven't done testing to bring it back up because your risk management process is failing you and you're not looking at new uh, documents or new requirements of the standard for your product anymore. So we're gonna wrap it up with risk management tools, which is just uh, some extra ways to help document the information. So we've talked about risk identification and analysis. How can you document it? Well, you can do a hazards analysis checklist. You can start a failure mode and effect analysis. You can do a fault tree analysis. Um, when you do a risk estimate estimation, you know, uh, FMEA is kind of a gold standard of this, but you can also use reliability prediction software or tools or even more advanced OpSim or modeling software. For your risk controls, again, you will see a trend with the FMEA being kind of a front runner in this for documentation, but you can do, again, reliability prediction and advanced um, system modeling. And that can include things like analyzing and implementing and evaluating your risk control measures. And so when you get to production and post-production monitoring, you can do the failure reporting analysis and corrective action system, which is a little bit more robust and the life data analysis. But we're gonna primarily talk about FMEAs because they are the industry gold standard for doing some of this documentation. And it kind of looks, you'll see it looks a lot like that trace matrix that was presented earlier. Go, go, go back just a second, Ty. Um, so I do want to talk a little bit, and, and we'll probably hit on it later, I think, in the slide deck, but that, that hazard analysis, because in my opinion, the FMEA is kind of fine for the middle two, but it's a little premature at the analysis level, and you really need to be thinking through that, that those potentials of the hazardous situations and only the things that can really um, create a true risk. So the combination of, you know, the hazard, the hazardous situation and the harm um, should be making it into something where you go through a formal risk estimation process because you shouldn't have to estimate the risk of something that you re that reasonably is not going to create a risk, but you need to go through that analysis in advance. And okay. I can expand on that a little bit too, because I don't see it in the upcoming slides. The hazardous situation uh, checklist or hazard analysis, 14971 has a lot of um, annexes and I believe in oh. the newest one, they've pulled it out and it's its own standalone document, but it is a really good tool to walk through because it walks through a lot of those foreseeable, not those foreseeable misuses, I'm sorry. It walks through a lot of the environment uses and where hazards can come from. And it helps your brain, especially if you're not familiar with maybe a clinical setting or um, a home use setting, it helps walk you through where a hazard might come from and things you didn't even think about. It will help you identify any hazards with your electrical safety or, you know, I worked in radiation, but I had brachytherapy, not x-ray. And so it was a slightly different profile. It helps you walk through all the nuances there. 
right before you do dive into an FMEA, because an FMEA is quite intimidating when you start getting into it. The hazardous situations checklist is a good starting point, but when you're ready to go in and do a very robust FMEA, it's the most common industry tool, and it's also very commonly misused. One of the problems is that sometimes it's handed to an individual to just handle everything. It can be very misleading or incorrect if it gets out of date. And so you'll be like, oh, this has never happened, even though I might have seven complaints showing that this is a, a risk that keeps happening. And so the severity or not the severity, the occurrence should be increasing and nobody's been updating your FMEA. So that's not good. Um, it's only as good as the risk accept acceptability criteria. It can be really tedious or complex when you have a very complicated system of devices, but why people use it is it really helps you identify different modules together. It can be hybridized so you can really expand and blow situations out. It starts early on in the process and it helps you identify your controls and highlights key features. Just to touch back on what we were talking about with the hazard analysis, Ed wrote, he is an expert on this as part of the 14971 uh, panel. He wrote preliminary hazard analysis tools should be used up through design input. FMEA requires design outputs to be performed and FMEA has limitations of only being single fault and not all fault and not normal conditions. So 14971 requires all fault and normal conditions where devices have not failed to be covered. So FMEAs are a great reliability tool, but not as good in product safety and all tools must be used with their limitations to take advantage of their benefits. Yep, so FMEA is the most common one because it's relatively cheap and affordable and straightforward. You have to stack different tools to get the whole picture. There are different types of FMEAs. So how many can you name? Well, you have your design FMEA, which is all about identifying potential failures and weaknesses of a design. And you don't have to do it in all three of these broken up ones. You know, people will put them all together if their product is straightforward or put, put design and use together and then process will be individual. This is just kind of buckets. Process is all about the manufacturing processes and where errors or uh, contaminations, things like that can be introduced and can cause a harm or a risk. And then usability is all about how there are potential failures during the use of your device. So this is, you know, failures because of the environment of use or failures because of the user or foreseeable misuse that can all be documented together there. So this is what a typical FMEA looks like. To, uh, to, to Bill's point, you can see how you, you have to build through design inputs because you can't get, especially that you've got your design inputs and maybe initial design outputs to get your initial risk estimation. And then you have to go through this process all again to reduce your risk 
which is gonna require possibly a reiteration of your design outputs to be able to get to that residual risk estimation. Yeah, and so it builds up and you can kind of see that there are different phases here. You know, you have your very early on hazardous situations, which you can do with the hazardous situation checks, what the effects are, what could cause that. And that's very early on in the system. That's kind of in your prototyping design inputs. And then you can assign them a severity. And it's important to note that even when you implement risk controls, the severity doesn't necessarily change or does not change because the risk the severity of the risk is unchanging. If that still happens to the patient, you could still potentially either inconvenience them or cause a life, loss of life or cause a disability and requiring surgical intervention. That severity is not gonna change just because you implemented a control. If that situation still happens, they would still be hurt. So that's an important thing to know. And then once you've done your risk control measures, it's, this is another thing to, important to note is you need to look at any new risks that arise from your risk control measures. Did you implement something that actually had a worse outcome? That's just part of making sure that you are addressing everything and not causing new sources to come into harm. And then you will end up with a final residual risk estimation. We're not going to go into great depth on this, but we're just going to mention a few words on usability and human factors. This is right from FDA's CDRH Learn. Human factors are the study of the interactions between human and devices, and it plays an important role in design control. And what's not said there is risk management. So you really need to consider all of the foreseeable misuse, all of the ways that the user is going to use your device and could introduce a harm. You know. Yeah, I think that this was originally a video where he talks about the preamble again. I think it is, yeah. Inputs should also include human factors. Human factors are the study of the interactions between humans and the device, such as the interface end users and patients have with the device and the subsequent design of that interface. This is important since human factors can lead to improved ease of use, appropriate instructions for use, increased proper use, and decrease use error. Also, human factors can help to increase the device reliability, durability in life, and decrease maintenance and repair. Last, taking human factors into consideration during design can lead to fewer adverse events and recalls. Design inputs can come from many sources, such as customers, standards, guidance documents, complaints, and adverse event reports, to name a few. Examples of design inputs from these sources can include device functions, physical characteristics, performance, safety, and reliability among those listed and others that are not. Spending enough time up front capturing the right information to develop design inputs will help to get your design process off to a successful start. So we talked about design and how risk was there and human factors are a part of all of that. And what's the last part is your benefit risk. And you always need to conduct a benefit risk analysis encompassing all individual risks and overall residual risk evaluations.
earlier, Dorothy mentioned what happens if you have a false positive. And in some cases, you know, maybe in your benefit risk, you determine that the benefit of the device outweighs the potential risk of, you know, such a small amount of false positives that happen on the market. These are things that you have to take into consideration the entire device all together.